Well, good morning, everybody. So you are the ones that somehow have navigated your way through the last few weeks. It has been um, crazy in terms of what's going on in our community and how coronavirus in the communities that surround us has been just ripping through all of us. I'm so glad that you're here and you're healthy. If you're online this morning and you're joining us, I'm so thankful that you're prioritizing the gathering. I'm so incredibly thankful to the incredible volunteers at this church that are still doing all the things that need to be done to make this happen. This is important, the gathering of the saints of God every single week. Thank you for prioritizing it. Thank you for joining us online. If you're visiting this morning, wow, what a week to visit. There was literally like a thousand people here the last time we got together, and uh, it's a little different today. If you are visiting, I would love for you to stop by the Welcome Center on your way out. Um, I have a service list. We have a service house out there. My friend Alan would love to talk to you and give you a gift. In front of everybody are those cards that are there every week. There's information on connecting. Now, you can do this all manually. Here, you can fill out these cards. There's cards on giving. There's cards on connecting. Prayer requests go on those cards. Or online at mhcc.life. You can do all of those same things. If you're going to be physically um, writing a prayer request down this morning, letting us know you're here, or contributing financially, please drop that off in the boxes that are mounted on the walls in the foyers, in this foyer or in the foyer in the children's ministry lobby. Again, you can do that all online at mhcc.life. And please, please let us pray for what's going on with you and your families. In fact, before I get started, would you all join me in a prayer this morning for our community and for those that are working their way through this most recent COVID nightmare? Uh, we, we have a friend of ours that are, that's in the hospital this morning, so I want to pray for her, and I want to pray for all of your friends and family. Lord, we know that you are over all, that there is nothing outside of the bounds of your control. And so, Jesus, as our good, good Father, we ask this morning that you would do an amazing work of healing. We thank you, Lord God, that so many people have come through this so well over these last few weeks, and we continue to pray for your mercy um, and your protection over this community church and over the communities in which it serves, Lord God, that you would bring us through this quickly, expediently, and healthy. We ask it in the great name of Jesus. Amen. So this morning we're starting um, a series I'm super excited about, and I probably say that about every series, but uh, this one more than, than most. I want to start by telling you a story. It's a story about um, my Uncle Frank and my Aunt Beverly. My Aunt Beverly is probably watching online this morning. I remember the day, kind of, I was a young kid. See, my parents, my, my dad only had one brother, and it was his brother, Frank, and they only got together at Thanksgiving and sometimes in the summer, right? So you kind of remember these days. This time, they got together for, for another, a sad occasion. Their uncle, so my uncle Frank and my dad, their uncle, next generation up, uh, was a man named Eddie, and Eddie had passed away, and they were getting together to go to Eddie's funeral. And it was the first time they left all eight of us cousins home alone. My, my dad had four, and my uncle had four. And uh, they left, and we didn't burn the house down, and they came home uh, a bunch of hours later. Now, why I remember this so distinctly was my Aunt Beverly was the first person through the door. And my Aunt Beverly is like the picture of joy. She's always happy, always in a good mood. And my Aunt Beverly came through the door that day, red-faced, embarrassed. You could read the embarrassment on her face, kind of coupled with some anger, you know. And I was like, I mean, I'd never seen this before. And, and, and then she was followed through the door by my Uncle Frank. And my Uncle Frank kind of had an apologetic look on his face, but he also seemed like he was a little bit upset too. And 
So I remember thinking, what in the world is going on? And, and so he, the two of them just went upstairs, and I remember hearing the door slam to one of the rooms. And so my mom and dad came through the door a few minutes later, and they'd eventually explain what happened. What happened was they were at this funeral, and um, my dad and my uncle were with their cousin. Their cousin's name was also Eddie. So their uncle that had died was Eddie, but their cousin's name was Eddie. And they were doing what brothers and cousins do when they get together at, at funerals and weddings and they haven't seen each other. And so they were having some fun with each other, kind of ripping on each other, you know, talking about the good times when they were kids, um, you know, having some fun and, and kind of laying into each other a little bit. So at one point while they were recounting all these stories and having a good time at each other's expense, my uncle had brought all these pictures with him to the funeral from when they were kids. And so he says, hey, I'll be right back. I'm going to go outside to the car and get some of the pictures from when we were all growing up, right? And so he leaves. Unbeknownst to him while he's gone, the officiant of the funeral gathers everybody together and now says, okay, we're going to start a time of commemoration of the deceased Uncle Eddie. Would anybody like to say anything? At which point, that's the time where my uncle walks into the room, and he just assumes now everybody is still talking about the young Eddie, that's their, their cousin. So he makes his way to the front of the room, and he holds up a picture, and he goes, I'd like to say something. He says, I, I have this picture here. Here's a picture of Eddie before he got fat and ugly. And it went over just like that, right? There was some rumbling a couple of laughs, and then there was an audible gasp, and the widow began to cry. You see, church, putting your foot in your mouth, it's kind of in my DNA. This is what we do as a family. Like, I'm used to it. I, I think at one point or another, right, what's going to be said of us at our funeral is, is always crosses our mind. My guess is for Uncle Ed, he never thought somebody would stand up and go, here's a picture of him before he got fat and ugly. What about you? Have you ever given, I know you've given thought to what's going to be said about you at your funeral because you're a human being. What is going to be said about you when it's all over? A couple weeks ago, um, when everybody was home, like they are today, struggling their way through COVID, um, uh, did you see the special that they did on um, John Madden, you know, NFL head coach and play-by-play -play announcer? It was a brilliant special. Madden and Pat Summer were like the voice of my Thanksgivings growing up, right? And so Fox News had done this great special on him, and it aired on Christmas Day, and it celebrated the impact he had on the game, but more importantly, the impact that John Madden had had on, on the players' lives. And they were all speaking so emotionally, these big, gruff football guys, about the impact Madden had in their lives. It was fantastic to watch, right? It, it, I watched it on December 25th. John Madden died on December 28th. Soon after his passing, I, I, I heard a saying, maybe you did too, everybody that was involved in it said, we're so glad we were able to give him his flowers while he was still living. Have you guys ever heard of that saying before? I'd never heard of it, but I, I just kept hearing it about John Madden. Everybody just kept saying, boy, we were able to give him his flowers while he was alive. I like that. I think we should probably practice it. With that said, though, the truth is most of the time the flowers for all of us are reserved for that one day, the funeral, which is why 
something struck me so interestingly about that day, December 28th. Um, I, I was scrolling through my Facebook feed as I spend way too much time doing sometimes, and there was a post from author Donald Miller. I don't know if you know Donald Miller. He wrote a book, Blue Like Jazz, several years ago. Pretty good book. Anyway, he posted this on the same day Madden had died, right after I had watched the, this special on him. Here's his post. I, I know you can't read it probably, but I'll, I'll, I'll read it to you. Here's what he said. He goes, my morning ritual includes reading my own eulogy. It's fiction, of course, but it helps me direct my life. By the end, in only about 30 years, I want to have lived a great story with my family, lived a great story with my business, and lived a great story about civil service. These are the only stories I have time for. The number one thing the exercise of reading my eulogy does for me is it helps me say no to plot lines that are not predetermined. I have time for three more stories, and that's it. Once I'm done with my morning ritual, my mind is clear. And I just thought, wow, that's like super creative and, and original. Until as I was doing the research for this new series, I discovered that this is actually an oft-repeated exercise, and it originated, does anybody know where it originated? With Stephen Covey in, in his famed book, best-selling book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. It's actually an exercise for what he calls habit two, right? Um, and habit two is begin with the end in mind. Now, here's how Covey, who originated the exercise, um, here's how Covey described it. And I think it's a pretty valuable exercise. Here's what he wrote. He said, in your mind's eye, and I'd encourage you to join me now, in your mind's eye, see yourself going to the funeral of a loved one. Picture yourself driving to the funeral parlor of the chapel, parking the car and getting out. And as you walk inside the building, you notice the flowers, the soft organ music, you see the faces of friends and family that you pass along the way. You feel the shared sorrow of losing and the joy of having known that radiates from the hearts of all that are gathered. As you walk down the front of the room and you look inside the casket, you suddenly come face to face with yourself. This is your funeral three years from today. And all these people have, have come to honor you and to express feelings of love and appreciation for your life. So as you take your seat and you wait for the services to begin, you, you look at the program that was in your hand. There's going to be four speakers today. The first is a speaker from your family, immediate and also extended. Children, brothers, sisters, nephews, nieces, aunts, uncles, cousins, grandparents, who've come from all over the country to attend. The second speaker is one of your friends, somebody who could give a sense of what kind of person you were. The third is from your work or your profession, and the fourth is from your church or some community organization in which you've been involved. Now think deeply, Covey wrote. Let, let yourself sink into the depths of your soul. What would you like each of these speakers to say about you and your life? What kind of husband, wife, father, or mother would you like their words to reflect? What kind of son or daughter or cousin? What kind of friend? What kind of working associate? What character would you like them to have seen in you? What contributions and achievements would you want them to remember? Look carefully at the people around you. What difference would you like to have made in their lives? And here's how he summed up the exercise. He said, if you participated seriously in this visualization experience, you touched for a moment some of your deep fundamental values, you established brief contact with that inner guidance system that 
whispers what you needed to remember. My friends, this is your welcome to this new series, Legacy. Everybody wants to leave one. The truth is everyone is leaving one. The only question is, what will yours be? Now, Covey's quote here about the exercise, that if you take the time to do it and write it all out, you'll have touched some of the deep fundamental values in your heart. An inner guidance system, he says, that whispers, that whispers what you need to remember. To me, it sounds a lot like what Jesus' disciple Peter, you know, walk on water, Peter, I'll never deny you until I did three times, Peter, to what he wrote about his legacy. In his second letter to a collection of churches, Peter writes from Rome, he's in, he's in captivity, and he realizes his life is drawing to a close. And so this is kind of his goodbye letter to the church, right? And he's shortly going to be put to death by the Roman emperor Nero, and so he's looking back on his life too. And so he starts to think about his legacy, what he's going to leave behind, what will be said of him when he's gone. And so he gives this list of qualities that followers of Jesus should, what he says, add to their faith. We'll go through those in, in, in the series. But then he summarizes his point this way. He goes, therefore, now listen, listen to this. He goes, I intend, so there's intention here, always, all the time, to remind you of these qualities. Though you know them and are established in the truth that you have, I think it's right, as long as I'm in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me, I will make every effort so that after my departure, after I'm gone, you may, may be able at any time to recall these things. They are, as Covey put it, they are for Peter, the whispers of his life, of what he wanted them to remember about him. The only difference between what Covey was trying to teach and what Peter was trying to teach is that for Covey, these legacy items, these were things of his own desire, things of his own making, values of his own decision. For Covey, you should pick what your legacy is, what you want to leave for others. For Peter, his desire legacy wasn't actually of his own choosing. Peter didn't see his legacy. Peter didn't want his legacy to be one of his own making. But instead, he wanted his legacy to be the legacy of Christ in his life. Peter understood when it comes to legacies, he wasn't to be a solo runner. He was to be a relay racer. He had been handed a baton. He had been handed a stick of faith by none other than the originator, the, the lead leg in the race of faith, Jesus. And Peter just wanted to be faithful to handing the stick off again well. That's the concept of a Christ-like legacy. Most of the early followers of Jesus understood the power of legacy. The Apostle Paul in the, in the book of Acts does the same thing. He gathers the elders of the church at Ephesus together, and, and he wants to leave for them his, his final goodbye, his legacy. And here's how he describes it to them. He goes, and now, then I'm wrapping this up, and now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me, listen to this, guys, my only aim 
is to finish the race and complete the task that the Lord Jesus has given me. Do you hear the priority of that? My only aim, right? My life is drawing to a conclusion. I have, you know, a lot of the things don't matter as much as they used to. My only aim, the priority of my aim is this, to complete the task Jesus has given me. And what was that? The task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. I want to finish the race. I got handed this baton. And what's the task? It's to leave the legacy I want to hand off to the next generation, the good news of the grace of God, that God was, as he had told the Corinthians, reconciling the world to himself through Christ, not counting people's sins against them. Let me hand you that truth. See, Paul, like Peter, was in a solo runner. He understood he was in a relay race. He brings up that same imagery to the church in Philippi. He goes, brothers and sisters, I don't consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing, here's the priority again, one thing I do, one thing, forgetting what's behind and straining towards what's ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Do you hear the urgency of it? Now, what's really interesting is you go home and you do a little Google search on legacy in the Bible, you won't find the word in the scriptures. But the concept of the impact of one life on the generations that follow it are so deeply embedded in Christianity's entire context. From Adam and Eve to Cain and Abel to Peter and Paul. So the question I'm going to be asking you over these next bunch of weeks is, what is your legacy? What are you leaving behind, honestly? And I want you really, really to, to consider doing this exercise writing that eulogy, because I think it's both biblical and incredibly practical. Here's why. First, the wisdom of the scriptures on on, on this concept is clear. Proverbs is this ancient book of wisdom right in the center of the Bible. Here's what the writer of the Proverbs said. He goes, the memory of the righteous is a blessing, but the name of the wicked will rot. The memory of the righteous, what will they remember of you? And is it, will it be a blessing? Or will it amount to nothing? Uh, Here's another. A a, a good person leaves an inheritance for their children's children. It's generational. It ripples on. A bad person? Here's what I would tell you. A bad person leaves a legacy too. A bad person leaves an inheritance too. It's just not a good one. See, I think the exercise is powerful because I believe the problem with our legacies, the majority of them is, in fact, I'd probably argue the vast majority of our legacies are unintentional. We actually never meant to leave that behind. I mean, nobody wants to leave a legacy, an inheritance of substance abuse. You know, my dad came home and he got hammered every night. Or anger issues. Nobody wants to leave a legacy of broken relationships or narcissism. Nobody wants to leave behind, nobody wants to set out as an example patterns of hypocrisy or or busyness. Nobody does. But so many do. See, most legacies, I believe most inheritances are unintentional. 
It's funny, the only one we seem to really work on is the financial one, right? And it's literally utterly meaningless. Writing your own eulogy from those four different perspectives, right? I, I thought they were good. Family, friends, work, and then church or social organizations, and, and feel free to add others. I think it forces intentionality in, in the way you're going to live your life. Seriously, pause for a moment. I, I, I've done this. I, I've been reading about this for a few weeks now. Put yourself there in the front row of that funeral home. I might actually, if this is too morbid for you, somebody said, well, you know, it's kind of morbid. Picture yourself at your 80th birthday party then, right? And they're gathering to talk about you at your 80th party. But, but for me, like, I've been wanting to enter this. And so, I, you know, when I do this, I'm over at Lieber on 206. That's probably where I'm going to get done up. Some of you will be there, hopefully, for you. <laughs> Right? And, and, and we're going to gather. And I, I, I've, I, I, I see it. Now, I've done plenty of funerals at Lieber. So, I, I mean, I can picture it. Right? I want you to put yourself there. It's your funeral. Your husband makes his way to the podium. Your wife stands up to start to come up front. Your kids, your, your friends, your coworkers, your community. What are they going to say? I mean, can I just be honest? Are they going to have to come up with some stuff? I mean, I do plenty of funerals, and, and I know all about watching people have to come up with stuff. I mean, are they, going to have to, are they going to have to work hard to avoid, you know, the big elephant in the room, whatever that is, you know, the, the thing you couldn't quit or the, the relationship that you should have fixed or the, the flaw that you, you, you should have worked out? Or... Will that not even be something they have to consider? Will their testimonies about you just flow freely about who you were? And, and not, just, not just platitudes, but specifics. I mean, what do you want them to say? The memory of, a right, of, of the righteous is a blessing. See, legacy living is intentional living. Legacy living is not solo running, but relay racing. And I'm telling you, the science on this is so fascinating. It really, really matters. We need to live in light of our legacies. Now, next week, we're going to begin to look at specifics in regard to legacies. But today, I want to, I want to just share with you the profound examples of three very real families and the power of legacy, the lives of one man or one woman, and the ripple effect that lasts for generations. The first is a pretty famous example on the power of legacy. In 1874, a man by the name of Richard Dugdale, he actually worked on a project on behalf of the New York Prison Commission. And so he began to visit prison facilities. And as he was working on his project, he discovered in New York that there was a particular family connection between some of the incarcerated, which led him to do further research. And in 1877, he published his study. Here's what the study was called. The Jukes, a study in crime, pauperism, disease, and heredity. Now, Jukes is, is a last name that was made up. He didn't want to use the actual family's last name. It was made up to represent people who were living and deceased whose identity, right, he didn't want to disclose, but they all traced their lineage to a man of Dutch ancestry named Max that was born in 1720, real-life human being, okay, born in 1720 in the Hudson Valley. Now, 
Here's how Max is described in a, in a case study on this family that was actually written now in 1900 by A.E. Winship. Here's, here's what he wrote about Max. He was born about 1720 of Dutch stock. Had he remained with his home folk in the town and been educated and thrifty like the rest of the boys, he might have given the world a very different kind of family from the Jukes. Max was a jolly good fellow and not very bad. He was popular and he could tell a good story that made everybody laugh. Of course he was vulgar. Remember, this is written in 1900. Of course he was vulgar. Such jolly good fellows are usually vulgar. He would not go to school because he didn't like it. He wouldn't stay in in the evenings because he didn't like that. He did not enjoy being talked to, but always wanted to talk himself and to talk to boys who would laugh at his yarns. He would not work. He didn't like that. He wanted to go fishing and hunting and hunting and trapping. So he left home early and took to the woods. Max liked nature. He, he thought he was lots better than the town people because he knew more than them about nature. In fact, he found a lovely spot on the border of a beautiful lake in New York State where the rocks are grand and the water's lovely, the, the forest glorious. There was never a more charming place in which to be good and to love God than this place where Max built his shanty about 1750. But he did not go there to worship or to be good. He simply went to get away from good people to get where he would not have to work and where he would not need to be preached to. And this beautiful spot became a notorious cradle of crime. See, here's, here's what Dugdale that was doing the research for the New York Prison Authority discovered about Max Duke's family. He estimated that there were 1,200 members of the family tree, and he was able to report on the details of 540 of these direct descendants, plus another 169 who married into the family line. One member of the family tree was said by Dugdale to be, quote, Ada Duke, who married one of Max's sons and was nicknamed Margaret, the mother of criminals. Listen to this now. Of the total group of related individuals, Dugdale found that 310 were paupers, who spent a combined 2,300 years in poorhouses. 150 were convicted criminals, 190 women were prostitutes, seven were murderers, and that this family, these paupers and criminals, cost the state of New York at that time $1.5 million to pay for their incarceration and $1.25 million in public welfare and other costs to society. Now, you can go look this up. There's been a lot of famous studies on this. And actually, there's been a lot of recent debate about, well, aren't we being a little hard on poor Max Jukes, whoever he was? Give him a break. Was it really all that bad? And people have actually gone out to try to say, well, maybe it wasn't that bad. And, and when, they've, when, when, when they've gone back and looked, most of them at this point go, okay, well, yeah, it was bad. The legacy of one man was not good. Now, what made the Max Jukes story really take off was in 1900, this guy, A.E. Winship, wrote his study, he did another, another um, academic study, about the Jukes family, and he compared the power of the Jukes family to the power of the Jonathan Edwards family and Jonathan Edwards' legacy. Now, if you're unfamiliar with John, Jonathan Edwards, he was born in Connecticut, right, so basically same geographic region, same time period, okay? In 1703, he was raised there. He attended Yale at the age of 13, and he later went on to become the president of the College of New Jersey, now known as Princeton. He would go on to become the preeminent theologian and minister in the United States in the 18th century. His, pre his preaching spawned what's known in America as the First Great Awakening. 
And he led a very intentional life. In the study, Winship writes about the resolutions he would, Edwards would write down, the things he lived out. He literally would write things like this. Resolved, he would say, to do whatever I think to be my duty and most for the good and advantage of mankind in general. Resolved, never to lose one moment of time, but to improve it the most profitable way I possibly can. Resolved, to live with all my might while I do live. Resolved, never do anything out of revenge. Resolved, never to speak evil of anyone. Resolved, to maintain the strictest temperance in eating and drinking. Super intentional. Benjamin Warfield then went and charted his legacy, the 1,394 known descendants of Edwards. One writer declared that the story of Edwards is an example of what sociologists call the five-generation rule. Mark Merrill writes, how a parent raises their child, the love they give, the values they teach, the emotional environment they offer, the education they provide, influences not only their children, but the four generations to follow, either for good or evil. Edwards demonstrated a strong sense of duty in his role as father. He and his wife Sarah had 11 children, and he specifically tried to make time for each one of them. As for Edwards' descendants, we got a little video, a little family tree here. They included a U.S. vice president, three senators, three governors, three mayors, 13 college presidents, 30 judges, 65 professors, 80 public office holders, 100 lawyers, 60 physicians, 75 Army or Navy officers, and 100 clergymen, missionaries, and theological professors. There were practically no lawbreakers. How can this be explained? Well, Edwards was a godly man, and he was hardworking, and he, he was resolute, and he was intentional. Furthermore, Winthrop, who did the lineage, here's what Winthrop said. He goes, much of the capacity and talent, intensity, and character of the more than 1,400 of Edwards' family is due to Mrs. Edwards. He said, we must give credit to whom it is due. This is a true story. This is the power of legacy. You are leaving a legacy, each of you, each of us. Some of, some of it's intentional. Most of it's not. And here's the deal. Often the legacy we're leaving is, well, it's the same one that we got handed, right? It's the same one. It's the baton that, that we got handed ourselves. And, and, and truth be told, many of us have been handed broken batons from broken generations before us that lived in broken worlds. But it doesn't have to be that way. You don't have to hand the same baton. Ryan and Courtney were over for dinner last night. I was sharing with Ryan this book that I, I, I got when I was a young father, and it was called um, Point Man. It was written by a guy named Steve Farrar. And I actually saw him give a talk uh, on this one time. And he gave the best visual about this as, for a father I ever heard. He said, you know, every family is like a chain link fence. Have you ever gone to Home Depot and you look at chain link when it's on the thing? All the links, if you just look at it, all the links are going in one direction. And he said, that's the power of legacy and the power of generational sin patterns. They're all going in one generation. He said, but it only takes one man to turn the link in a different direction, to send it going in a different way. You don't have to hand off the same baton. Now, that's not just a motivational speech. You can change the legacy of your family. You ever, this is the last family I want to show you. There's a man in the scriptures named Asher. He's not well known. 
You find them all the way back in the book of Genesis, the first book in the Bible. Asher was the eighth son of Jacob, one of the fathers of the faith. God came and, and gave this covenant to Abraham, right? And then Abraham has a son named Isaac who has a son named Jacob. Some of you, if you know the story of, of Jacob, he has two wives, Leah and Rachel. And at different times, they both struggle with infertility. Both of them give their handmaids to Jacob. Well, Asher was born from Leah's handmaid, Zilpha. He actually had an older brother named Gad. At Asher's birth, Leah said, quote, how happy I am. The women will call me happy. So she named him Asher, which meant happy in Hebrew. One writer put it this way, though. When you look at the way Asher's life started out, it's hard to believe he was all that happy because he wasn't born from Jacob's favorite wife. Jacob had a favorite. He actually picked that up from his mother because he was his mother's favorite. Well, he had a favorite wife. Everybody knew it. Her name was Rachel. He wasn't even born from Leah, his not favorite wife. He was born from Leah's handmaid. He didn't have the honor of being the oldest son like Reuben. He wasn't the strongest son like Judah. He wasn't the doted on youngest son like Benjamin. He wasn't the favorite. That was Joseph. Asher lived his early life in the shadows, learning to be content with whatever the leftovers were. And besides that, he grew up in one of history's most dysfunctional families. Parental favoritism, sibling rivalry, deceit, long-standing resentment. His father, Jacob, in the Bible has a nickname, the deceiver. He stole the birthright of his brother. He tricked him out of it with the help of his mother. And Jacob, he had, this is his father. His father had 12 kids by four different women. His father, Jacob, created all kinds of turmoil and chaos in the family. And clearly, at some point, Asher got the baton that was handed to him, that legacy, those traits. Asher, after all, was part of the brothers who, out of jealousy, threw their brother Joseph into a pit to die because they couldn't stand that he was the father's favorite. And then when he didn't die, he participated in selling him into slavery in Egypt. Jacob made a mess. He handed it down to his sons. They made a mess, even down to trying to murder their own brother and then lie about his death to their father. See, Asher was not raised in Jonathan Edwards' home. Asher's links had been laid in one direction for generation after generation. But, I don't know what it was, but something changed in the line of Asher. The link turned. He did something that proves for all of time that legacies are not set in stone. They can be changed. You can change the legacy you're leaving. I like how Tony Evans puts it. He goes, the legacy bequeathed to you does not have to be the legacy you dispense to others. Because you see, Asher's name does come up again. If you, if you jump forward several hundred years, just like in the Edward, Jonathan Edwards and Max Jukes story, if you, you jump forward several hundred years in the book of First Chronicles, here's what we read about the legacy now of Asher. And, and you're not going to see liar or deceiver or cheater there. Here's what's known of Asher's legacy. The scriptures say all these were descendants of Asher, and then here come four characteristics, and notice the changed characteristics. All of these were descendants of Asher, heads of family. Asher's four boys, they, they had become heads of families, not abandoners of children, not baby daddies to unloved women, but heads of families, leaders of families, heads of households, leaders in their homes, responsible men, men who understood what it, what it would mean to pick up, pick up the biblical role of being a husband and a father, 
not absent dads, but heads of families, men who lived with intention, men who broke generational curses of deceit and lies and favoritism and dysfunction, leaders of families, not couch potatoes. They, they did not just set the moral way for their families, but the spiritual way for their families. Somehow, and I don't know how, but somehow Asher produced men that did not just love God with word, but indeed, and their sons watched them live that way. But they weren't just heads of families. All these were descendants of Asher's, heads of families and choice men. Not average, guys. His legacy wasn't producing run-of-the-mill men. Somehow Asher decided that his boys weren't going to be like all of the other boys. They weren't going to go in the direction of the prevailing wind or crowd, or even in the way of his past family. His boys, and not just his boys, he had a daughter too, the scriptures tell us, his kids were going to be different. They were going to turn out different. If they were going to turn out different, they were going to be, need to be raised different. Different than everybody else's kids. Different than the way he was raised. Asher sets a different example for his kids than the standard of the day, than the standard he was happened. He had to have been intentional. But it wasn't just that. See, all of these were descendants of Asher, heads of families, choice men, and brave warriors. Somehow he raised these kids to do what is right in a world that incrementally celebrates so many things that were once deemed wrong. They were raised to fight for goodness and righteousness and justice and mercy. They were raised to lift up the marginalized, to rescue the oppressed. And they were likely raised to rage, wage spiritual warfare in the heavenlies for and over their kids in this and coming generations. I'm now praying for my granddaughter. She's not even born yet. Asher's kids must have realized that their war ultimately for their kids wasn't against flesh and blood. But the real war waged for our kids is in the spiritual realm. And then finally, there was this, all these descendants of Asher, heads of families, choice men, brave warriors, and outstanding leaders. I mean, something changed. And when it did, Asher realized that these kids of his were now going to have to lead the coming generation in a new way, towards a new end. Faith wasn't supposed to be just personal, but public and passed on. They were to lead like Peter and leave behind a legacy so that when they remembered him, they remembered his ways, and his memory would be a blessing. And if you think one person deciding to change their family's legacies isn't powerful, then look at the last line because it'll remind you of, of the story of Jukes and Edwards. All these were descendants of Asher, heads of families, choice men, brave warriors, outstanding leaders. The number of men ready for battle as listed in their genealogy was 26,000. From one man, 26,000 ready to do battle. That is the power and the purpose of a legacy. I have to ask you, what will be yours? Don't just settle for the baton you were handed. Be intentional. Band's going to come up and close us. We just finished celebrating Christmas. If you joined us on the 26th, you know I spoke about Simeon. Mary and Joseph take the baby Jesus to the temple to present Jesus when, if, after 40 days. And, and Simeon was one of the two people that God gave the ability to discern that the Messiah was there. There was a second person. It was a woman. 
which is just so God. I mean, in this male-dominated culture, to have one of the two people that recognize the Messiah be a woman. And, and here's what we know. Luke writes that she was very old, an 84-year-old widow. And he says of her faith that this incredible faith, I mean, listen to this. Here's what Luke writes about her faith. He says that she never left the temple. She worshiped night and day, fasting and praying. And then coming up to Mary and Joseph at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to whom all were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. She was one of only two people to recognize the Messiah when he showed up. She spent her whole life in that temple waiting. I mean, where would a woman get a faith like this? There's only one other line of description about her. Here's what Luke says by way of her introduction. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Penuel, of the tribe of Asher. The tribe of Asher. The great, 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 great granddaughter of Asher. The power of one person's legacy. You're leaving one. Over the next few weeks, I hope you'll share with me in the goal of making sure it's the right one. Let's stand and close the song.